Now, if you have been following the news, uh, then you know that our Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Boris Johnson, won't be Prime Minister for, for long, right? I think his term expires on the 5th of September or something. He has been booted out of office, as they say. Now, why has Mr. Johnson lost his job? I'm sure you got an answer to that yourself. Uh, well, if you're one of his critics, you probably use phrases like lack of integrity, right? Chaotic, incompetent. Those are the phrases that have been used to describe the Prime Minister. Phrases of his critics, not my phrases, right? Just want to make that clear. Now, in short, they believe he has not met the standards you expect from a Prime Minister. That's the bottom line. Now, whatever you think of Boris Johnson and what has happened to him, this thing that has happened to him reminds us that people treat us based on how we perform for them. That's life. Your wife loves you. I'm sure she does. But she still expects you to pass our standards. If you fail them, you may soon be out on the streets. Literally. She has standards. Trust me. <laughs> you may be out on the streets if you fail those. Your boss is probably the kindest boss in the world. But he will only let you stay in your job if you keep passing those performance reviews, the annual performance reviews. If you fail them, perhaps twice in a row, you may soon be out of your job. Everyone in life wants us to perform for them, except the one true God of the Bible. He does not demand we perform for him. In fact, he knows that we can't perform for him. Now, to be clear, God also has a standard. We need to be clear about that. He has a level of behavior he expects from everyone he comes into contact with, from every human being he has created. This is called the law of God. The law of God reveals actually the character of God. And, and this law of God is revealed in the Bible. So because the law of God reveals the character of God, uh, God's standard is basically himself. God expects everyone who wants to be with him to be perfect, holy, Good. God is holy. <laughs> and he can't live with sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. God cannot dwell with sinners. Now the problem is that all of us have fallen short of this standard of God. That's the problem. We have all failed to pass the exam of life. That God has said we failed it. We are all disqualified before God. We've not met the performance required to have life with God. But amazingly, the Bible says that instead of God asking us to meet that standard, like how other people ask us to meet their standards, God has decided to meet that standard for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is God the Son who came to meet that standard. He came to live a perfect life on earth. He came to perform for God in our place. Christ came to pass the exam of life for you. That's the gospel. And when Christ passed that exam of life for you, he took his perfect record to the cross where he died to exchange his perfect record of obedience for your sinful record. 
right? So if you know, maybe you think of Jesus as having a perfect credit file, right? And yours is completely messed up. Christ went to the cross to exchange his perfect credit file, if you like, for your credit file full of CCJs and everything else you've committed before God. When Christ was dying on the cross, God the Father treated his perfect son as a disobedient sinner. Christ had no sin, but he, God treated him as a sinner. Why? Because Christ was dying for you in your place. God poured out his wrath on Christ who was sinless for you. He did that for the, for, because for, he did that to bear, Christ did, accepted that, to bear the wrath of God that you deserve. That is why Christ died. He died in our place. To swap his perfect obedient record for our disobedient record. To save us from the very wrath and judgment of God that we deserve. And he did that so that if you truly surrender your life to Christ, as your Lord and Savior, God will immediately clothe you with his, the perfect record of Christ. God will look upon you like a person who has never disobeyed him. Like you have never sinned. Like you're not sinning. Like you never sin in the future. God, by trusting in Christ, God declares you perfect before him. A perfect performer. And this is what it means to be a Christian. I think we just need to emphasize that because it amazes me how many people come to church and still don't know what it means to be a Christian. A true Christian is a person who knows in their heart they cannot meet God's perfect standard on their own. And so he or she is only trusting in the perfect obedience of Jesus to set them from sin. She's not looking to her own performance. She's not trying to tick boxes before God. She's looking to Christ alone, him myself, and him alone, as a hymn writer, Augustus Top Lady, just reminded us. And so she understands that and she has come to Christ and asked Christ to forgive her sin, past, present, and future, and to ask Christ to give her uh, a brand new heart that truly loves Christ for Christ. That's the gospel. That's how you become a Christian. Now, does that describe you this morning? As you sit here right now, can you say with confidence that you are a true Christian based on what I've just said? If the answer is no, then come to Christ right now. Christ is waiting for you. He wants you to surrender your life to him because this is why Christ died. He died for you. Christ is saying to you right now, young and old, come to me today. Do not trust in your own effort. Do not trust in your performance. You can never be good enough for a holy God, Christ says. You cannot save yourself. Trust in my performance today. Repent. Come to me today. Trust in my death to wipe away your sin. Let my death dress you in my righteousness. Let me give you a new life with God. Repent and trust in me today. Today, if you hear his voice, Christ says, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Because we don't know what may come after you leave this place. We get into the car, die, end up in hell. We live on the edge of eternity. 
This afternoon, you could enter a Christless eternity. Yama Road. And so today, repent, come to Christ, accept this call, this performance of Christ in your place. And if you accept this call of Christ, well, come and talk to me about it so that you can obey God's command now to be baptized to show the world you are a true Christian. Now, if you're already a true follower of Christ, everything I've just spent time telling you, you know already. You can't be a Christian without knowing now. Because that's the gospel. You know you are saved by the performance of Christ, not by your performance. But there's a problem. The problem is that you forget that. You and I are prone to think that the performance of Christ only gets us through the door of the kingdom of God. Uh, For the rest of our life with Christ, we must rely on ourselves. We must work hard to buy God off in case he changes his mind about us. Right? We think the Christian life is about work, 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 so God could love me more. Yes, you know you are saved by grace, but you think it's different how you live. And the reason we are like that is because we know everyone in the world asks us to perform for them. That's the world we live in. And so in your head, you think naturally God must be the same as everyone else. Yes, he accepts me by grace, but perhaps he's going to change his mind about me. Unless I rely on my own goodness, I, I, I rely on my own performance. Well, that's not how God wants us to live, beloved. He wants us to remember the performance of Christ in our place has already been credited to our account. Yes, good works are important as a fruit of a transformed life, but we are not saved by good works. We are not kept by good works. Rather, we are saved and kept for good works as a fruit. We do not need to end God's approval. As a true believer, you don't need to try and buy God off. To make God become proud of you. He's already proud of you in Christ. And it's because he's already proud of you in Christ. That's why you need. That's why you would want to live for him, isn't it? As a a thank you. Listen, the gospel is not something we do. And it is something done for us. And that's why Christianity is different from any other religion. In fact, there are only two religions in the world. All other religions say, do, 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 and God will perhaps accept you and keep you. Christianity simply says, done. Christ has done it for us on the cross. It's a free gift. But we forget that, and so today I want to remind you that Christ has freed you, if you're a true follower of Jesus, from relying on your performance. And to make this point... Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17 there. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. We can summarize the key truth those verses are teaching us are simply this. And it's the only point on your outline. It's teaching us that we must stay free. That should have a from. 
We must stay free from relying on our performance for God. Right? That's how that sentence should read. We must stay free from relying on our performance for God. This is a key point Paul is making here. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Look, what seems to be going on in these verses is very simple. False teachers have come to the city of Colossae, right? And they have come with a big stick. Because the, people in Colossae, the believers in Colossae, they are new Christians. So these false teachers have come with a big stick. And the big stick they are carrying is the law of God, right? And they are beating these new followers of Christ with this stick. They are trying to run their lives. They are telling them, do this, do that. And they are saying to them, unless you follow the laws of the Old Testament, to the, to, to the, to the end detail, you are still going to hell. Yes, you have repented and trusted in Jesus, but unless you follow the laws, you are going to hell. Now, it seems these false teachers are particularly focusing not on the whole law as such, but on two parts, which are their passion, right? Two parts of the law. First of all, two parts actually of the ceremonial law. First, they want the Colossians to keep the dietary laws. They're interested in what the Colossians are putting on their plate, what they're having for dinner. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave instructions to Israel about what they should not eat. Right? And you can read about all the unclean animals in the book of Leviticus, right? God also forbade the priests from drinking wine on the eve of an important duty. You read about that, for example, in Leviticus 10, verse 9. And of course, you may know about the vow of the Nazarites in Numbers 6, verse 3. Restrictions on wine. The false teachers want the Colossians to follow these laws. And most likely, they're even going beyond Leviticus. And we get hints of this, particularly when we uh, message we look at next week, looking at verse 20 to verse 23. They're going beyond. They're very much like the Pharisees. They're going beyond even what is written. Now, the key problem, the first key problem, is that these false teachers are policing what people are doing in their private worship of God. They are monitoring, as I say, people's plates what they're eating for dinner. We might say these false teachers are like the Seventh-day Adventist church and other Christian cults in our day, which seek to champion Old Testament laws about food and drink. That's the first issue. They want to control their diet, right? Not to lose weight, but to, so that they can end themselves. Uh, they believe that is the way to have life with God. The second issue is that these false teachers are telling people to keep the laws concerning public worship of God. So they are regulating private worship and they want to regulate public worship, right? They want the Colossians to observe a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And if you know your Bible very well, you know that the false teachers at Galatia were also doing the same thing. And Paul talks about that in Galatians 4 verse 9 to 11. We know the Pharisees were doing the same thing. We know the early church dealt with this problem in Acts 15, right? These false teachers are saying it is not enough for just to believe in Christ, right? You must be in the synagogue on a Saturday, and you must keep all the Sabbath laws, they're saying. Unless you do your bit to observe the Feast of Booths, unless you keep the Passover, 
you still go to hell. You still go to hell. You need Christ plus all these things. I believe there are 614 laws, I think, in the Old Testament. And they would want them to keep all of those. Now, Paul has heard about this from Epaphras, what the four sisters are saying at Colossae, and he's not happy. He wasn't happy when he wrote uh, the letter to 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 Galatia. And he's not happy here. And so he says to the Colossians plainly, don't let them take you for fools. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. The key command there is, let no one pass judgment on you. Do you know what it means? Well, the original phrase literally means, don't let anyone take you to task. Don't let anyone be on your case, we might say today. The false teachers are like the paparazzi, aren't they, who constantly follow celebrities and politicians. They are on their case all the time, trying to make their life difficult. They are like the Pharisees during the day of Christ. The Pharisees never gave our Lord Jesus a break. They were constantly pestering him here and there. Paul says, you know, don't let these false teachers do this to you. These people are trying to run your life they're trying to turn your Christian life into some rule-keeping. Actually, what they're doing is they're trying to shipwreck your faith. Listen, says Paul, you are not closer to God by observing the Old Testament laws or not observing them. We are not Christians because we keep all the laws of the Old Testament or indeed all the laws of the Bible. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, he says, in food, or drink, in food and drink, with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow, that's the reason, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What is Paul saying there in verse 17? What Paul is saying is this, all the laws of the Old Testament was never meant to save us. They were meant as a shadow, as an arrow, as a shadow pointing us to Christ. When you go outside and you look at the shadow, what do you see? Well, you say there's a shadow for this building. Well, you know that the shadow is pointing to this building. Your shadow points to you. Right? The Old Testament laws were a shadow of a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus. He is the reality, says Paul. And notice verse 17 starts with the word, therefore, doesn't it? In other words, in light of the above. Paul is saying, in light of everything I've just told you in verse 9 to 15, don't make your life, to be a, your life in Christ to be about you. It is foolish to say we need Christ and the Lord to have life with God because the Lord always pointed us to Christ. Christ is all we need and we do really have him, says Paul. We are complete in Christ. Now we need to pause here, don't we? We need to pause here. I know it's hot, so just, let's just pause here and, and take this in, right? Paul is not saying that we should be lawless. That's not what he's saying. The Bible defines sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. That's John chapter 3. Sin is lawlessness. So Paul is not promoting sin. Remember the Bible calls Satan the mystery of lawlessness. In other words, to be lawless is not only sinful, it is demonic. So Paul here is not promoting demonic behavior. 
No, Paul is making a very simple point, a different point. He's saying Christ is all we need to have life with God. The purpose of the law is to remind us of our need for Christ. All of the law is fulfilled in Christ, he says. And because Christ has fulfilled the law, he has freed us who are in Christ from the demands of the law as a means of obtaining salvation from God. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, we don't need to keep the law to have God serve us. Christ is the end of the law for us. He has fulfilled every bit of the law for us. And so we are now free from our salvation. We are free from ending our salvation. Right? Now the question you want to ask is this. If I am free from depending on my performance, if I'm not saved by my performance, does the law matter then? Does it matter if I keep the law or not? Is Paul saying we don't need the Ten Commandments? Well, no. The law of God is still important for three reasons. Three ways the law is important, okay? You need to note this, because it's very important, right? First of all, as a Christian, keep reading the law to let it show you why you need Christ every day. The law points, is a shadow pointing to Christ. So the more you read the law, the more you know why you need Christ every day. You and I desperately need to be reminded that God is holy, and you're only going to know that by reading Leviticus. <laughs> you need to be reminded that you are a sinner saved by grace alone. You, need, you know that by reading Exodus. That you cannot keep the law to end life with God. You need to be reminded of that. If you do not read, study, and understand the law of God, you will forget that you need the grace of God in your life. That's the point. You will quickly give in to work salvation. So you need to make every effort to read and understand the law. So that you don't end up making cheap the death of Christ on the cross for you. So that you don't turn your life into some sort of slave labor for God. Only by reading the law do you see that you can't meet it. Right? So the first thing is that keep reading the law to remind you why you need Jesus. Secondly... The second use of the law is that we need the law to teach us how to live right as followers of Christ. This is the positive, if you like, dimension of the law. We need the law to teach us how to live in this evil and crooked generation. Remember, the law points us to Christ, right? We need the law to teach us what sin is. We need the law to know how we constantly need to repent of it. We need the law to help us fight against the temptation of Satan, right? But here is a crucial thing. As we use the law, we need to use it properly. What do I mean by that? We need to know which parts of the law are binding on our conscience and which parts of the law are not binding on our conscience. There are some things in the law that we must do and there are things in the law of God that are no longer binding on us. Okay? So... I believe all the Old Testament laws, but let's start with the New Testament. I believe all the laws commanded in the New Testament, letter and spirit, are binding on our conscience. Everything God has commanded us in the New Testament, we must do by letter and by spirit. We must obey them 
to help us grow to live the only life of grace in Christ. We must fulfill the law of Christ. And I believe God expects us as well to live in line with the spirit of all laws in the Old Testament. Not the letter, but the spirit of all the laws in the Old Testament. And this is in line with how the Lord Jesus preached on the Sermon of the Mount. Now, I'm about to say something that may be a little controversial for some of you. I don't think the division between ceremonial, judicial, and moral law is actually always helpful for us. I know it's got a strong Puritan tradition, and, uh, uh, and uh, I'm a number one fan of the Puritans. That division has been with us since the age of the Puritans. I think it's helpful, but I don't think it's always helpful to think of it through that division of the law being split in three. The moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial laws, all the things you have to do for ceremonies, and the judicial law, which was very much as a civil use, right? It can be helpful, but I don't think that division actually... Um, I would even say I don't think that division is biblical, right? Why do I say that? Because all the laws of God have moral content. Every law God has given us is actually a moral law. That's obvious. Because God is a moral being, and whatever God gives has a moral force and content in it. For example, this is an example, right? The spirit of the ceremonial law just looks like things we can ignore. But actually, when you read, read Leviticus, you see that actually the ceremonial laws are teaching us something about the moral perfection of God. We must take them seriously. We must not dismiss them as just some sort of more, um, ceremonial law. They have moral content. They point us to the moral perfection of God. They point us to the, even to the moral perfection of heaven itself. So study Leviticus seeking to learn about God's commands, moral commands. Don't just dismiss it as a, as a, as a, as a ceremonial thing. Right? So I believe the right approach then is to obey all New Testament commands, letter and law, as the law of Christ, and to live by the spirit of all Old Testament laws, including the ceremonial and judicial laws. The spirit of them, not the letter. Right? So how does this look like? Well, for example, this means we must obey the Ten Commandments, right? But we must obey the Ten Commandments with a focus on the spirit of the Ten Commandments, not the letter of the Ten Commandments. And again, this is in line with the Lord Jesus Christ, what he said, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount. Sexual sin is not just the act, it is also a lust. It's not just the letter. But in fact, it's a spirit that grants even a bigger command on us. Murder is not just killing someone physically. It includes, it includes hatred. So the spirit of the law, rather than constraining the law, actually widens the law. It's the same one on the mount. For the Christian, we are no longer bound to celebrate the letter of the Saturday Sabbath. And neither should we be misguided, let me just be clear, neither should we be misguided to think Sunday is a new Sabbath. It is not. It isn't. Rather, as believers, we must keep the spirit of the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy, 
But we do it not by the letter, but by the divine intent. That is to say, we stand with the early church in exercising our freedom to worship on the Lord's day. The day that Christ ushered in a new humanity. We met on a Sunday, not because it's a new supper. We met on a Sunday because this is the Lord's day. It is the day that Christ rose and ushered in a new Sabbath. The Jewish people rested on the seventh day. We've entered a new age now. A new, not a new age. <laughs> Let me get that right. We've entered a new heavenly age. That's the one, right? A new heavenly age. We don't want to get misguided on that. Where we now are in, in part of a new creation, a new humanity, isn't it? And so we worship. We worship on a Sunday. And when we gather like this, we must not do it as some sort of religious duty. No. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. So when you meet like this, we are meeting as a free and joyful expression of our love for Christ. What about food? Well, as believers, we can eat and drink anything we like, in theory. But we must not do it in a way that damages our body or promotes sin in any way. The Bible is clear about that. And I, and I believe the dietary laws were given partly to underline that point. But in the New Testament, we even got clear force on this. We are free to eat and drink, but we must not do it in a way that damages our body or promotes sin in any way. So, for example, Christians are free to drink alcohol, right? But they are not free to get drunk. And they are not free, certainly, to get addicted to wine. Or to any food for that matter. It is a sin to be addicted to Nando's, isn't it? <laughs> I have to remind myself of that. It is idolatry. It's the same thing with Christians who smoke. It's idolatry to smoke, I think, because it's addictive. That's obvious. But there's another thing. Smoking destroys your body. Why would you destroy God's temple? Of course, overeating also destroys the body. Why would you destroy God's temple? We should all repent of these things. So notice there this New Testament command. And this is how we use all the New Testament command and we focus on the spirit of the Old Testament laws. I'll move on quickly. Because I said there were two uses, isn't it, of the law? Right? The, uh, the third use of the law is actually for regulating our society. God in the Old Testament gave the people of Israel to help them build a society that honors God. Right? As followers of Christ... The law of God in the New Testament and the Old Testament is a standard for which we must persuade our country to live by. We must tell the world that to be a good nation, we must live by the law of God. Now, we have no right to force it on people. But we must plainly warn our society that unless they return to the spirit of the law of the Old Testament, and unless they return to the command of the letter and the law of the New Testament, things will just continue to get worse. Because God has given the law of God as a gift for regulating society. And if we turn our backs on it, well, everything degenerates. And I would extend that even for the home. So not only regulating society, but fundamentally starting in the home. This is how we are to regulate our homes by the spirit of the, old, the law of the Old Testament and the letter and the spirit of the New Testament, which is the law of Christ. So just to summarize, Paul is teaching us here that all followers of Christ 
must stay free from relying on our performance for God because we are in Christ. Right? That's what I'm saying. And Christ has freed us from having to do good works for God in order for God to save us. Right? We are already saved in Christ. He has fulfilled the law for us. Right? Now, and then I've said, this does not mean we become lawless. Right? The law is still good for us. We read that in Psalm 19. We should love the law. Why? Because the law convicts us of our need for Christ. It grows us in holiness. And thirdly, it is useful for a good society. But I've emphasized that we need to be careful how we use the law in our lives. We must resist any attempt to try and end our way to God. We must stay free from relying on our performance, even as we obey the law, the spirit of the Old Testament, and the law of Christ in the new. So how does this look like in practice? How do we live a life that is about resting on the performance of Christ for us, not on our performance? I just want to leave you with two quick things. I know it's hot, so I'll leave you with two quick things and then I'll end there. Two quick things. First of all, as followers of Christ, we must regularly examine ourselves to make sure we are not living by trusting in our performance. Self-examination. Regularly, we must do that. I just want to give you six questions you can ask yourself every day to make sure you're not relying on your performance. You might want to write this down. First question, question number one. You can ask yourself every day. Am I always thinking more about what I must do for God more than what God has already done for me through the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I always thinking more about what I must do for God more than what God has already done for me through the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that question. Second question you need to ask yourself. Am I always comparing myself to other people in the church and the world in general and secretly wishing that other people would compare me to others? Am I always comparing myself to other people in the church and secretly wishing that other people would compare me to others to see just how good I am? Question number three. Are there things I am doing at the moment to win the applause of people because I want them to be proud of what I'm doing? Are there things I am doing at the moment to win the applause of people Applause from people because I want them to be proud of what I am doing. Question number four. Am I fearful of sharing my deepest struggles with people in the church because it would change how they treat me or look at me? Am I fearful of sharing my deepest struggle with people in the church because it would change how they treat me or look at me? Question number five, you might ask yourself. Am I always looking more at the sin in the lives of people around me more than my own sin and how it grieves God? Am I always looking more at the sin in the lives of people around me more than my own sin and how it grieves God? And the final question is this, and this is very important for parents especially, and wives. <laughs> Am I prone 
to imposing the letter of the law of God on people in my life to help them avoid sin rather than pointing them to the cross of Christ? What's my default? Is my default to impose the letter of the law of God on people in my life to help them avoid sin or is my default rather than pointing them to the cross of Christ? Well, if any of the answers to these six questions is yes, then you are currently living a works religion rather than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If any of the answers to these six is yes, then you are leaning to this works religion rather than trusting in the performance of Christ. And if this is the case, then come quickly before our God this morning, repent of relying on your good works, and ask God to trust, to enable you to trust in the performance of Christ for you. Our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the elect, our joy without end, he obeyed all the laws of God for us. We don't need to lean anymore on our effort. Christ is enough. He is both our shepherd and the obedient sheep. He is our God and our perfect man. He is a king of kings and the perfect citizen. All that we need in God, all that we need in life is found in Christ. All that we need for life with God has been completely fulfilled in Christ. So, Take time out to examine yourselves with these questions regularly. The second thing, and I'll end here, is let us resolve to grow in preaching the gospel every day to ourselves. After we've examined ourselves, let us grow in preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we need to do that regularly because there are times in the Christian life when the Christian life begin, feels like a difficult to-do list. Do you know what I'm talking about? Most of the time with Christ is exciting. I hope you're born again, and I hope you agree with me that being a Christian is, is great. It's exciting. But sometimes it can feel like a difficult to do list, right? It can. It can leave us feeling tired in our walk with God. The house must be cleaned. The baby diapers needs changing. The spouse wants more attention. The boss at work is demanding more effort, right? The church, of course, has its own demands. More barbecues. <laughs> That's a good demand, right? But you know what I mean? More evangelism. More midweek attendance. Give more. And the list just goes on and on, doesn't it? And it can all become very tired. I felt tired sometimes. We can even feel so tired to the point that we start questioning our faith. Am I doing enough for Christ to love so that Christ would love and care for me? We can start asking such questions. Am I even a believer? Are you starting to doubt this morning? Are you feeling tired of Christ? Are you feeling tired in Christ? Well, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Christ has done for you. Christ has performed for God for you. Go back to verse 9 to 15, which we've started so far. Learn those truths afresh. Listen to the message again. And remind yourself that you were once a wretched sinner, dead in sin. You were spiritually uncircumcised, spiritually defiled. Remind yourself that God has performed the spiritual circumcision 
on you. Reminds us that he has united you to Christ by faith. When Christ died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose, you rose with him. And that you are now united with him forever. You are sat in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning with Christ, triumphant over the evil powers in the cross of Christ. Remind yourself that the power of sin has been broken. Remind yourself that the penalty of sin has been paid. Remind yourself that your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Remind yourself that you are headed for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Keep reminding yourself of these precious truths from verse 9 to 15 and all the book of Colossians. And commit yourself to regularly reading this passage to pray these truths back to God. And commit yourself to hearing the gospel preaching, the preaching of the word of God in this church. And other good sources that you've got where the true word is being preached. But commit yourself to being here morning and evening to hear the word of God preached. Talk to others about it. Let the gospel of grace sink in. Deeply, firmly, like an embedded nail. If you are cut off in the word of God, you're not taking it in, you're not reminding yourself of these truths, you will go back to slavish living. And you will continue to live a disappointed Christian life. Not because the grace of God hasn't been lavished for you, but because you are forsaken preaching the gospel to yourself and placing yourself regularly under the preaching of your word. And you know, if you do that, if you, if you, if you place yourself you keep preaching the gospel to yourself well you grow to enjoy your life in christ you live with peace every day you grow in peace every day why because you have no fear of letting go down you stop worrying about what people think about you you stop worrying of the things that you are lacking yes you have desires and you are lacking those but you stop worrying about that it does not matter what people say about me you would say to yourself it does not matter what I haven't accomplished or finished. What matters is that God sees me complete in Christ. And you'll be encouraged, isn't it, to pray more with resolute faith. You know that Christ has performed to God for you, so your prayers immediately have access to the throne of grace. Why are we prayerless? We are prayerless because we doubt the truth of these words. But when you know that it's not about your performance, but what Christ has done for you, you will pray, won't you? And you know the strange thing will start to happen, right? Sins will start falling off. Right? All those areas you've been struggling with in terms of sin, they'll just start disappearing without even trying. Because the more you get closer to Christ, you get to his light, as it were. You get to his holiness, it just burns everything. But the joy of Christ fills you so much that what previously attracted you in this world won't have any... any there will be, you'll be like, I don't need that. Because my joy in Christ is sufficient. Well, Christ will become a dearest friend to you, won't he? You see that he has rescued you from your disobedience and now produce deep hatred in your heart to hate sin. And this is the law of Christ, isn't it now? We fulfill the law of Christ through Christ, through his gospel. And we'll keep the spirit of the Old Testament. Why? Because we love the law of God. Now. Because it points us to who Christ is. It grows our holiness in him. And it helps us to live right in our homes and in the nation. May the Lord help us to stay free from performance by growing in examining ourselves and preaching the gospel.
to ourselves. Amen.